Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the U.S. and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and this is Rediscovering New York. Professionally, I'm a real estate broker with Halstead Real Estate, and I love New York. Rediscovering New York is a weekly program about the history, texture, and vibe of our amazing cities. City, sorry, not plural, though we certainly have a lot of towns in the, in the metropolitan area. On most shows, uh, we focus on an individual New York neighborhood. We explore their history and their current energy, what makes that neighborhood special. And we do it through interviews with historians, local business owners, nonprofit organizations, preservationists, local musicians and artists, and the occasional elected official. Sometimes, like tonight, we host a show about an interesting and vital color of the city that's not focused on one particular neighborhood. Prior episodes have focused on the history of U.S. presidents who came from or lived in New York. The history of the women's suffrage movement in the city actually was localized in Brooklyn, believe it or not. The history of the city's LGBT community and the gay rights movement. We've explored the histories of bicycles and cycling. We've also covered the history of punk and opera in the city. In the future, we'll journey to some of the city's parks, the subway, and even some of its more interesting cemeteries. After the broadcast, each show is available on podcast. You can hear us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other services. Tonight, we are honoring Black History Month, which is February, with a special program about the history of African Americans and African American communities in New York. And what history would not be complete without an exploration of jazz in New York and the New Yorkers who were at its core for so long? My first guest is Dominique Jean-Louis. Dominique is a historian and curator at the New York Historical Society, where she most recently worked on the award-winning Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow exhibition that was in 2018, and the exhibition Meet the Presidents, which opens President's Day weekend in just a week and a half. Or is it next week? I think it's next week. She's a doctoral candidate in U.S. history at New York University, where she's completing a dissertation on race, education, and youth culture in post-civil rights era in New York City. Dominique received her B.A. in Comparative Ethnic Studies from Columbia. Prior to her work at New York Historical, she served as Public Humanities Fellow at New York Humanities and as an Andrew W. Mellon Pre-Doctoral Fellow at the Museum of the City of New York, where she also contributed to their flagship exhibition, New York at Its Core. Dominique regularly writes and lectures on race, New York City history, and immigration. Dominique Jean-Louis, welcome to Rediscovering New York. Hi, it's my pleasure to be here. You're uh, from the area originally, but not from the city itself. Yep, that's correct. Uh, both of my parents immigrated from Haiti to the New York metro area um, in the uh, late 19, in the early 1970s. Well, let's talk about your professional uh, journey. When did you decide that you wanted to study history? Um, I decided I wanted to study history when I came to New York. Um, I came here uh, to study. I came here for college and was really swept away by the breath and the depth of history that was under my feet. And so I think I wanted to be a journalist when I came here. I thought I wanted to focus on what was new and happening. And then I got here and started learning about the history and realized I wanted to learn about what was buried, what was kind of deeper. Um, and um, while an undergrad, decided to switch to history. Well, journalism and history certainly have the similarities, but journalism is, is always uh, what's now, what's happened in the last 24 hours in the era of the news cycle in the last couple hours, yes. whereas history is far deeper and uh, can go back forever, I suppose. And it gets real meaty when you can connect the two, right? Because the world we're living in today, just the, the more you kind of learn about the world around you, the more you um, can connect it to the, the past. When did you join the staff of the Historical Society? 
So I joined uh, the staff at New York Historical in 2017. Uh, we were, uh, they were then putting together an exhibition called Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow, which um, marked the 150th anniversary of the passage of the 14th Amendment. And so Henry Louis Gates, who is a uh, trustee there, uh, wanted to put on an exhibition to um, coincide with that anniversary, as well as a documentary that he was making at the time. And so um, I came on to work on that documentary, and I've been researching and curating there ever since. Oh, great. I'm going to ask you about that exhibition a little bit later in the segment. But I want to start off with talking about the history of African-American people in New York or what would become New York City. When did the first Africans or people of African descent come to what became New York? So the precise date is slightly contested, but um, we know it was the 1620s when the first enslaved Africans came over to what would become New York. They were brought over by the Dutch in order to start the work of clearing the land and making um, uh, what was Lenape land basically at the time um, into land that they could most profit off of and, and most kind of um, carry out their, their work of, of, of building an outpost. So some of the first enslaved Africans actually were put to work on what's now Governor's Island, clearing brush and uh, making it inhabitable. Oh, and that, sort of an ignominious uh, part of the history of New York. Uh, the first slave auction actually happened in the city at the time of the Dutch. Absolutely. Around the 1650s or so, um, you definitely still had not only enslaved Africans living here, but the, the sale and purchase of African bodies as well. Hmm. But the Dutch had this system that allowed people who had been enslaved um, by the Dutch West India Company to attain some measure of freedom. And it was interesting reading about this, um, that there was sort of a, uh, well, I wouldn't, you wouldn't call someone having some measure of freedom, a hybrid freedom, but they, right. were, they were not um, enslaved peoples in the way that we would understand enslaved people like in the, in, in, in the Old South to be. And indeed, there were land grants to people of African descent who had gained what was termed partial freedom, in the, and they lived in, in Manhattan. Yeah, it's an interesting thing thinking about bondage in the 17th century because it didn't really mean one thing. There was a range of ways that you could be enslaved or not quite free, whether you were African, whether you were Native, whether um, you came from a no number of other migrant groups. And so um, while these enslaved Africans very much are part of this larger legacy of um, African enslavement, uh, it did look kind of different. And there were ways that um, formerly enslaved people, for example, for example, could go on to own land and even farm for themselves. What was the land of the blacks, Dominique? So the land of the blacks is this kind of interesting area whereby, as I mentioned, um, when the Dutch come, this area was, you know, Lenape land, um, and there were increasingly violent altercations between the settlers, not just the Dutch, but including the Dutch, um, and natives. And so um, one of the areas that Africans who um, could become free, one of the areas they were given land was this land of the blacks that kind of was the no man's land between native land and um, the Dutch settlement. So it's around, it's above where um, Wall Street is today. Of course, Wall Street used to be a physical wall built by enslaved Africans um, that kind of demarcated the line between Lenape land and the Dutch settlement. And part of that was now around where Washington Square is, isn't it, in, in Greenwich Village? Absolutely. Um, and there's still kind of excavations and archaeological digs that are continuing to bring up some of the ephemera of, um, of those communities that live there. And there are a number of African burial grounds, too, that... 
uh, in Lower Manhattan. Yes, absolutely. Um, and we're actually still in the process of discovering the extent of them, right? So um, I would say most famously in the 90s, we discovered the African Burial Ground, which is now a national park site, um, around the time when a federal office building was being constructed down in the financial district. Um, and they excavated these hundreds of bodies that not only um, were ID'd to come from Africa, but also were um, interred with all of these remnants of African culture. So things like cowrie shells and sh- cowrie shells and Sankofa um, insignias. And so not only did we learn that Africans were buried there, but often that, that they also brought in so much of that culture with them from the continent. Hmm. Well, um, the English get a credit for a lot of things. One of the things that they did that wasn't so nice when they conquered New Amsterdam, um, they demoted the, the status of, of free black people from property owners and legal aliens, and they basically took their land rights away from them. Um, and it didn't take the British long to expand slavery in New York, did it? No. Um, very quickly, New York really becomes a place that's defined on, uh, by slavery that really runs on um, this kind of enslavement, whereas I mentioned before that bond- bondage was kind of a very diverse term around the time of the Dutch. It's really when the English take over that that starts to mean something much more specific, much more hereditary, um, and much more um, um, difficult to get out of. And I was, It was very interesting to read that in all of the towns in the New World in North America, uh, New York held the second most number of enslaved people outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, it's estimated about 40% of households in New York City um, uh, were uh, held slaves within them. Um, New York Historical did a really groundbreaking exhibition um, about 15 years ago called Slavery in New York that I think opened a lot of people's eyes um, in this city and beyond to what a, um, a widespread thing it was for New Yorkers to own slaves um, in this time period. Were there many New Yorkers, either of African descent or from Africa, in New York City at, uh, right before the Revolution? Absolutely. Um, I think uh, it, it's hard to imagine. We tend to think of New York's black population really exploding you know, after the Great Migration, which I think we'll get to. But um, there have been black New Yorkers just about this whole way through, um, including um, at one point when it was still um, owned and ruled by the Dutch, about a third of um, this, uh, what it would become New York, were enslaved or were um, were African descended. So um, New Yorkers, so New York was a pretty black place even um, in that early 17th and, and 16th or 18th and 17th century history. You know, and kind of ironically, uh, although the British, you know, really brought more slavery to what would become New York City, they promised freedom for enslaved people who left their masses during the revolution. Mm-hmm. And upwards of 10,000 black people uh, lived in New York State, many of them in New York. Absolutely. Um, most people don't know that slavery wasn't abolished in New York until until 1827, actually. Yeah, um, I kind of always like to make the point that uh, for a few years yet, uh, there has been slavery in New York longer than there hasn't been. Mm. And uh, the only other state uh, in the North uh, where slavery uh, lasted longer was New Jersey. My home state. <laughs> exactly. Um, what was the New York Manumission Society? So the New York Manumission Society was um, a group of people interested in um, not only the end of slavery, but the creation of opportunity for African-descended folk um, who were living in New York. And many of our nation's founded father, founding fathers counted amongst the early members of the Manumission 
Christian society. So famously, people like Alexander Hamilton were involved in creating opportunity, creating and building schools. Um, although the, iron the irony is that some of them were slaveholders and members and founders of the Manumission Society. So in all matters of enslavement in New York, it's always a very complex picture. Mm. Well, we should also mention that even though slavery in New York was ended in 1827, that black men were not fully enfranchised, at least on, on paper, until the passage of the 15th Amendment after the Civil War. 150 years uh, this year. Ah, that's a great anniversary. <laughs> um, after 1827, New York emerged as one of the largest pre-Civil War metropolitan concentrations of free African Americans. Um, I'm guessing that the opening of the Erie Canal and the boom that New York City and Brooklyn became really attracted um, uh, many more people to work in, uh, in and around the industries here. It's true, and also, you know, the U.S. economy needed to change, right? So much of it was built on slavery, and increasingly, as more slaves, I'm sorry, more uh, states began to emancipate slaves, and um, it became increasingly evident that slavery wasn't going to be around forever, the kind of centers of industry changed, and so um, some of that is responsible for the fact that um, African Americans found themselves in new kinds of jobs. I, I read that one of the thriving residential communities for black people in Manhattan before the Civil War was actually what became Hell's Kitchen. Um, I learned that many black men worked on the water supply system that was being built in New York uh, in the 1830s. And when the spigot came on in the early 1840s, uh, a very big part of that project had actually been worked on by, by free men of color. Absolutely. Um, and on the one hand, it was all hands on deck, right? This was this massive um, undertaking where of getting all this water up from the mountains down to the reservoir in what's now Bryant Park. Um, you basically couldn't be in the business of turning down labor um, to get that massive undertaking complete. Um, but but um, yes, in that area, um, uh, eventually called the Tenderloin, down in kind of um, the West 30s, not far from where we are now, um, you had a lot of African Americans living and working, um, some of them in this, uh, this uh, industry that created our water supply. Well, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Dominique Jean-Louis, project historian at the New York Historical Society, about the history of African American people in New York City. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. 
Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York in our special program honoring Black History Month and the history of African Americans here in New York. My first guest is Dominique Jean-Louis. Dominique is project historian at the New York Historical Society. Uh, Dominique, tell us a little bit about the exhibition that you worked on, which now is traveling someplace in the country, Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow. How did that exhibition get get started? Sure. So um, uh, at New York Historical, one of our um, trustees we're lucky enough to have is Henry Louis Gates, who is an esteemed historian of African-American history. And given the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment that we had in uh, 2018, he asked for us to put on an exhibition um, all about the passage of the Reconstruction Amendments and Reconstruction and Jim Crow more generally, a time period that's crucially important um, in our nation's history, but so often misunderstood or not taught about at all. And so um, we put up that exhibition um, at open in September of 2018 to really shed a light on how the end of the Civil War was really just the beginning of the story on how the United States was going to extend full citizenship to people who had been formerly enslaved. Um, and we're lucky enough that that exhibition has been traveling around the country. It just opened up at the Atlanta History Center. And if you visit nyhistory.org, you can actually get a free download of it. So you can put it up in your library or um, in your classroom anywhere. So we just want to kind of get that history out and get that story told, and anyone has access to it. And our listeners in Atlanta can actually go see the exhibition. Absolutely. We hope you do. Um, you're working, you've worked on an exhibition that's opening up next week. That's correct. Um, uh, on President's Day weekend, which is a, an apt time to open, um, we'll be opening Meet the Presidents, which is a permanent gallery up on our museum's fourth floor that's looking at the history of the presidency. So that will include a full recreation, a detailed recreation of the Oval Office that you can explore if you can't get yourself down to D.C., um, as well as moments featuring treasures from the collection that really help to tell the story of what the presidency has been and um, what it represents today. So everything from the Bible that George Washington swore on to become president to um, looking at a teenager from Queens and her scrapbook of the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, just trying to understand what the role has been and how people have understood their relationship to the presidency throughout American history. And for our listeners, on a little bit of a lighter note, uh, about actually um, almost a year ago, we uh, hosted a program on this show about the history of presidents who either lived in New York or who had some history here, and about half of them did. Uh, and I'm proud that we did that on Lincoln's birthday, which is actually coming up in two days. I mentioned Lincoln, the, uh, the most incredible Republican president that this republic has ever seen, contrary to what some people in the party have to say now about uh, the current office holder. At any rate, getting back to the history of African Americans in New York, um, there were a number of predominantly African-American communities, in fact, towns in New York City. Seneca Village was one of them. Weeksville in Brooklyn was another. Um, what were they like? What was and how did they get started? Sure. So um, many of them um, came up because you had this community, as we've discussed, of free African Americans who um, maybe had trouble finding work. You know, they were in need of networks, and so um, many of them sought the refuge and sought the um, community and support of one another, and started creating these all-black communities. So some of them were neighborhoods. You know, you had um, Little Africa down um, downtown where 
around where Mulberry Bend is today. But then some of them chose to literally form their own towns and enclaves. You mentioned Seneca Village, which um, was in what was today, which was in what today is Central Park, um, and it was actually demolished to make way for Central Park um, when that section of the city was being built in the mid 19th century. Under the famous principle called eminent domain. Absolutely, mm-hmm. one of the most um, kind of devastating uses of that principle um, in New York City history. So some of them were pushed out, and then some of them kind of fizzled out. So you mentioned Weeksville in Brooklyn um, in today's Crown Heights. That was a community um, of free African Americans, many of whom actually uh, were fleeing the city due to racial violence around the time of the of the Civil War, um, sought a safe place to call their own. And so this was a community of um, Americans who um, built this um, amazing community out in um, central Brooklyn. And you can actually still visit the Weeks- Weeksville Heritage Society today and look at some of their houses and get a sense of some of that um, that history that was um, uh, there and then eventually lost due to time. You know, it just kind of um, bled out into the rest of Brooklyn. But you can still see elements of it at the Weeksville Heritage Center in Crown Heights, which I, embarrassingly to admit, I've not been to yet. And a native Brooklynite, I got to get there sometime. Um, you mentioned uh, 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 racial violence. There was a dark and shameful event, actually, that happened over a couple of days uh, in New York City during the Civil War. Uh, Absolutely. Um, it's one of those cases where. Uh, the history we tell ourselves sometimes um, needs a little bit more nuance. So we tend to think of the Civil War as the North wanted to end slavery, the South wanted to keep it. But New York had a much more complicated um, relationship with slavery. Many um, industries and businesses in New York depended on cheap slave labor. And many um, New Yorkers, among them newly arrived immigrants, maybe didn't agree with slavery but didn't necessarily want to fight to end it either. Um, And so when um, President Lincoln declared a draft, um, for people to fight in the war, a riot breaks out in 1863 that um, specifically targets African-American communities, and it was horrific. Um, we have um, historical figure, figures like Marcia Lyons who detailed um, her family's experience of having their home targeted, and New York actually lost about a third of its black inhabitants after those riots because they were too scared to stay. After seeing the violence and the kind of vehemence of the mob, um, they decided New York was not a place they could build the future. And four, maybe 40 or 50 African Americans were killed? Am I about, Absolutely. Uh, killed and lynched uh, from lampposts. Um, so when we're thinking about racial violence towards African Americans, it's really something that not only happens in the North, but right here in New York City. Hmm. Well, let's fast forward a couple of decades around the turn of the century, the turn of the 20th century. There was a large migration of African Americans from southern states to the North. Um, absolutely. And to New York. And to New York specifically. New York was a major destination for those who were fleeing racial violence and seeking opportunity coming from the United States South. Um, specifically, New York saw a lot of refugees from um, North and South Carolina. So um, particular cultures from the United States South found their way to particular cities. So we were more likely to get um, African Americans from the Carolinas. Detroit's more likely to get them from Kentucky. Um, there's this um, general movement upward that brings brings a certain kind of culture with it. So New York's African-American population not only grows, but it um, changes in really specific ways based on the experience of those migrants from the South. Hmm. Of course, uh, and uh, the most famous neighborhood in New York City that people associate with African-Americans is Harlem. Full disclosure, I live in Harlem. Uh, But before we talk more about Harlem, 
What were other neighborhoods where African-American uh, people lived in great numbers around the time that the Great Migration started before Harlem became a predominantly African-American community? Sure. So um, the African-American community in New York in some ways is really interesting because it's kind of gone north and north and north. So um, early in the 17th century, you have a lot of African-Americans living um, all the way downtown near what's now the financial district. Um, that's where the first black church is founded, St. Philip's Episcopal, which is kind of an offshoot of Trinity. Church. And then they move up to um, around uh, Mineta Street. It's kind of known as Little Africa, around uh, a little bit near Mulberry Bend. Then up again to what um, was known as the Tenderloin, which is now Hell's Kitchen, uh, roughly. It's kind of the West 20s and 30s here in Manhattan. Um, north again to San Juan Hill, which is around where today's Lincoln Center is. Um, and then finally, when Harlem kind of comes to be, um, and especially when the subways start opening in Harlem around 1904, um, that really becomes the premier destination of um, uh, black New Yorkers, and especially for those migrating from the South and also from the West Indies. Who was Philip Payton, and how did he help shape the future demographic makeup of Harlem? It's hard to overstate how important Philip Payton was in creating not only Harlem, but um, a black Harlem. So I always like to say Harlem became black on purpose. It was not a coincidence. It was not an accident. Philip Payton um, sees what's happening within the African-American community, particularly um, facing issues of police brutality, which has been a kind of constant throughout New York City's history. There are major race riots in 1900 and um, decides that Black, black New Yorkers need a safe place to go. And so he works in real estate. He decides to buy up a couple of buildings, evict the white tenants, and specifically only rent to black tenants right around um, 135th and Lenox, which becomes the real heart of Harlem um, then and now, really, and continues as his business grows to um, invest in real estate and um, specifically rent to black families. Let's talk about the Harlem Renaissance. Uh, people have heard about it. When when did it happen? When when did it start? What was it about it that made it a Renaissance? Let's let's talk about that. Absolutely. So the Harlem Renaissance, in some ways, is a continuation, and in some ways, is a new thing. So. Anytime you have new groups of people encountering one another, you're always going to have a flowering of creative energy, right? As cultures collide and as people learn about new things, um, that's just inevitable. So what happens in the 1920s is you've had a few years of this migration coming in from the United States South um, as more and more people are, are fleeing, the more and more African-American people are fleeing, fleeing the violence of the Jim Crow South. They're joined, as I mentioned before, by um, immigrants who are coming in from the West Indies and many of them find themselves in Harlem, which is newly black and exciting and open to the subways. And as their cultures collide, new ideas start fomenting. So you have immigrants like Marcus Garvey, who are bringing a very kind of um, black radical, um, um, you know, uh, um, self-sustaining um, ethos of, of celebrating blackness that not only encompasses the African-American community, but is really global in its reach. So his ideas start um, meeting with people like Arturo Schomburg, who comes from Puerto Rico, and is interested in black history dating back centuries and the history of, you know, the um, ancient civilizations in Africa. You also have music coming in from the low country and um, um, tinged with what's happening down on the Bowery. And so all those different cultures are colliding. New ideas start emerging. And um, it's really Elaine Locke in 1925 who um, declares that the new Negro is um, here to stay and that this is going to be a, a major moment for African-American history. 
Well, also, one of the things that happened, uh, by the way, the, uh, in the 1930 census, uh, 70% of the population of Harlem was reportedly African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that led to the political empowerment of African-Americans in the communities of the city. In fact, the, the first um, uh, person of color uh, after, the, uh, after Reconstruction actually was from Harlem, in, uh, in Congress, specifically. Oh, yes. Um, and it's around this time, yes, where Harlem becomes more um, demographically black. And of course, um, that means that there's a certain amount of voting power. And so you can start seeing that kind of um, representation in elected officials. That actually was Adam Clayton Powell Jr. And uh, yes. the story also goes that when he would uh, use the barbershop in the Capitol, you know, some of these uh, 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 old Southern white boys who had been there for a long time, you know, were, uh, were confronted with the fact that, yeah, yes, uh, there were people other than themselves who had the same voting rights in the Congress as they did. Absolutely, and he was married to one of my very favorite New Yorkers of all time, jazz legend Hazel Scott, who I ah. know you're talking about jazz in a moment, but they are definitely one of the power couples of, um, of Harlem, a little bit after the Renaissance, but um, one of these um, couples that really shaped Harlem as an up-and-coming place. And then Adam Clayton Powell Jr. set the stage for people like Shirley Chisholm in 1968, who was elected from Crown Heights and Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn. And of course, uh, uh, members of Congress right after that, Major Owens, uh, Adolphus Towns. Uh, I think they're retired, but I think they're still with us. Um, We're almost out of time, but I also wanted to ask you about some of the more recent black communities in New York City. Some of them are in Queens. You want to talk about those for a minute? Absolutely. So uh, my own family um, uh, immigrated to and is part of the community in Southeast Queens, which I think we tend to hear about Harlem. You know, we certainly know more about black communities in the South Bronx via the advent of hip hop. Um, but Southeast Queens, talking about neighborhoods like Addisley Park and South Jamaica um, and St. Albans, were really a kind of hotbed of the black middle class. So many of the jazz luminaries that got their start during the Harlem Renaissance took their Renaissance money and moved moved out to a middle-class existence out um, in St. Albans. So people like Lena Horne um, and Count Basie and these other kind of jazz musicians um, decided to kind of make that their 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 resting place for um, their New York career, even though they would still take the train out to Harlem to play sometimes. Mm. Well, Dominique Jean-Louis, thank you so much for illuminating us to the history of African Americans in New York uh, from the time that the Dutch were here. Our first guest on this special show honoring Black History Month has been Dominique Jean-Louis. Dominique's a project historian at the New York Historical Society. Um, She's worked on a traveling exhibition now, Black Citizenship in the Age of Jim Crow, and uh, is key in the upcoming exhibition next weekend at the Society of Meet the Presidents. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Jeff. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to focus on a very important part of African-American history in New York, jazz and the jazz age. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, 
a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back. Support for Rediscovering New York comes from our sponsors. The Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735. And support also comes from the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. Our show is about New York and the myriad textures of this amazing city. City, excuse me, that's the second time I said there were a number of cities in New York. There's another great show on the air about New York and specifically about the business of real estate. Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco, my buddy and colleague at Halstead. Vince's show airs live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on voiceamerica.com and also on podcast. You can like the show on Facebook and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle on those is Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. One other note before we get to our next guests, even though Rediscovering New York is not a show about the real estate business in New York, when I'm not on the air, I am indeed a real estate agent in our amazing city, where I help my clients buy, sell, lease, and rent property. If you or someone you care about is considering a move into, out, over, within New York, I would love to help you with all those real estate needs. You can reach me at my team, me and my team, at 646-306-4761. Well, we have a pair of special guests for the second part of the program honoring Black History Month, uh, two folks from the National, sorry, the National History, I'm getting the, You'll the get National it. Jazz Museum in Harlem, I'm <laughs> sorry, it. my apologies, no uh, where I've actually been. Uh, our first guest from the museum is Tracy Hyder suffern She joined the National Jazz Museum in Harlem as executive director in 2017. Tracy spent more than 20 years working to further the causes of racial justice, poverty, gender, other issues of equity and social justice, and the arts. Under Tracy's leadership, the museum adopted its first diversity, equity, and inclusion policy statement. And among other accomplishments, she increased corporate and foundation support. She's overseen unprecedented growth in education programming and museum attendance. Before joining the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, Tracy served as Chief Development Officer with Intersections, Interim Executive Director of the Afro-Latin Jazz Alliance, Executive Director of the Association of Black Foundation Executives, and Urban Bush Women Dance Company. She was Director of the International Relations within the YWCA, 
of the USA National Headquarters and Senior Program Officer with the United Nations Non-Governmental Liaison Office. Tracy is an alumna of Tufts University and holds a certificate in teaching English to speakers of other languages from Cambridge University. Tracy is a tribal member of the Ramapo Lenape Nation and co-chief of the Lenape Nation's Martin Band. Our second guest from the National Jazz Museum in Harlem is Ryan Maloney. A saxophonist, historian, and music educator, Ryan is the director of education and programming at the museum. He develops and oversees the museum's education programs. Prior to joining the museum in 2014, Ryan worked for eight years as director of education and programming at Jazz House Kids. Maloney has taught pre-K through college-level music classes in the U.S. and Ireland. He served as a research consultant on books and articles on jazz artists Herbie Nichols, Benny Goodman, Dexter Gordon, and Elmo Hope, and contributed to a documentary film on musician Teo Macero. Maloney also served as reference librarian and assistant archivist at the Rutgers Institute of Jazz Studies. He received his master's degree in jazz history and research from Rutgers University Newark and his bachelor's degree in music, education, and saxophone performance from the University of Minnesota Morris, where he also was on the college's radio station. That's right. Welcome, Ryan, and welcome, Tracy. Thank you. you. Happy to be here. Tracy, you're originally from New York, but Ryan, you're from Minnesota. Uh, Mm -hmm. How long have you lived in New York, Ryan? Uh, I just realized it's been 16 years, so a while. And our fair city is glad to have you. Um, I want to talk to each of you about your professional journeys that took you to the to the National Jazz Museum. Tracy, how about yours? How did you wind up at the museum? I guess the answer to that question depends on what I'm thinking about at the moment. Uh, but uh, as you described, I've had various experiences in the arts. Um, I'm from New York, uh, grew up around the arts, um, had a jazz radio show in college for four year, almost four years. Um, I can't take a lot of credit for that. I, what I, the way I describe that is um, every, or on Friday nights, I'd call my mother and I'd say I'd need eight hours of programming and she'd program the show for me for eight hours. That's a lot every of programming single, she, on a radio show. She was show. amazing. She would do it all the time. Um, but I, one of the things I say about my arts education is I grew up in New York City at a time when you couldn't graduate from public school without learning about music. And so I grew up playing an instrument. I played uh, stand-up bass and uh, just kind of was surrounded by the arts all the time, surrounded by really talented people. And no matter what I've done in my nonprofit career, I've been a nonprofit for about almost 30 years, uh, I've always related to the arts. Wow. I also want to add, too, that you couldn't get a, uh, a high school diploma without also studying art as well as music. That's I remember right. those days. That's the good right. old days of good, good New York City public education. That's right. Ryan, you're a musician. When did you decide that you would get involved with also bringing the appreciation of music and education around music to other people? I never remember uh, not loving music. I think we're born to love music when we're tiny little kids. We're dancing. We're singing. Music is a part of us. And... and Um, keeping music a part of your life is sometimes a challenge, but it is one of the things that we do every single day. And I think just about wherever you live in the world, music is a part of your life. One of the few things that kind of unites us uh, across, across the planet. So um, when I was young, I I just, I had opportunities to play. I had opportunities to listen um, to records that my parents had. And it just, uh, I, I felt like, Having an opportunity not only to make music but to share how you know the the community around music making was always something that was just a part of me bringing kids together when I was young and, and having bands in high school or in college and 
And just uh, I carried that on throughout my education and looking for new and unique ways uh, to bring people together to make music. And when we're talking about jazz music in particular, uh, it it doesn't re- it historically does not have a seat at the table in American music uh, education curriculum. So that's kind of how my path has led me to to really looking for new and unique ways to integrate uh, learning about jazz and, and the jazz experience into educational settings. We'll talk about uh, some of those programs at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem at the beginning of, of the second half of, of when we speak. Um, but I want to talk about the the genre. What what were the origins of jazz? There's so many. Um, Without getting into too much detail, but sure. if you want to talk about jazz yeah. in New York, but like obviously the, the core, the core of the music is comes from West African, the the West African musical traditions that uh, enslaved people uh, were able to maintain uh, throughout the kind of systematic removal of culture of those people during um, during that the early uh, slave times. We we look at ways that. The, the jazz music has retained some of that African tradition. And we see that even in jazz of today. So that's, a, that's the core. That's the fundamental is, is the African musical experience filtered through uh, um, the American experience. But then, you know, there's all kinds of elements that are swirling around in early 1900s with ragtime music and, and um, John Philip Sousa and marching band music and Western European musical tradition and... Uh, and um, you know religious music coming from all different uh, sects. So there's a lot of different elements that all kind of filter into this. Wynton Marsalis likes to call it the gumbo. You know, like there's all these different things that kind of are there. Talk about the place that jazz may have started, exactly. which I wanted to ask you about. New yeah. Orleans. Mm-hmm. Um, a two-part question: Is there a specific time when we can talk about number one, the beginning of the jazz age, but also where did it, where did the jazz age start? Because it wasn't in New York. Sure, and the term the jazz age comes from F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, in 1922. It's impossible in any art form to say that when something actually started, but we can start to look at when certain African American musical traditions start to change, and that really is, you know. Um, it kind of dovetails the the Great Migration, and it and there's a lot of uh, things that start to happen in the early 1900s that make this tradi- transition from primarily written music, um, where musicians uh, are playing music that's written down on the page, to integrating ideas of improvisation and syncopation in, a, in such a way that it's designed to get people moving, their bodies moving and dancing. And, and so, f- you know... 1915 to 1920 tends to be that window that we we start to see a real transition, and that dovetails the emergence of people like Jelly Roll Morton and yeah. and uh, eventually who's from New Orleans? <laughs> who's from New Orleans? Yeah, and New Orleans, of course, gets you know we like to say if jazz was born in New Orleans, it grew up in Harlem, um, amongst other uh, African American communities in the country. But um, Harlem plays a really important part in how the music evolved. What were some of the the changes in American culture right after the First World War that helped catalyze jazz in the jazz age? I'm going to just chime in here a little bit and say that Ryan's going to be able to answer most of these questions. I'm the administrator. He's the historian and the educator. (laughs) So I'm learning a lot right now. (laughs) Well, there's a lot of things that happen, um, you know, during World War One, that kind of shift people's understanding of of uh, African American identity mm-hmm. in America, and and one of the leaders on this is um, 
a guy by the name of James Reese Europe, mm-hmm. who kind of connects a lot of dots in this, what we would say pre-jazz period, prior to World War One, and then emerging out of World War One when he's he's uh, organized this group um, in the 369th Regiment uh, of African American and Puerto Rican musicians that are in in Europe, in in France, and they're playing African-American music, and it's one of the first times that that music is is brought to Europe. So James Reese Europe, being the organizer that he was, organizing the Clef Club, which presented the first African-American, one of the early African-American groups at the Carnegie Hall, amongst other things, he really is the kind of the catalyst that uh, erupts, in a way, out of World War I to kind of set the stage for what jazz would become. And there was an, uh, an element of, of style from New York. Uh, it was called Harlem, Stri- Harlem Stride, as, epitom- uh, as, as epitomized, as, as developed by Fats Waller. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every, every um, place that there was a, a black community around that time uh, had a regional style of jazz that started to develop, whether that was Kansas City or Detroit or Chicago or, or St. Louis. And, and in New York, that solo piano style, that regional style was known as Harlem Stride that kind of made this transition from ragtime music, Scott Joplin's music of the late 1800s, early 1900s, that was immensely popular, but a written music. You play it exactly as written. Harlem Stride starts to incorporate this idea of improvisation where you can change up the melodies, you can add things, you can you can adapt to your audience in a way that was new and unique and exciting for young people um, to hear. So, yeah, Fats Waller, James P. Johnson, Lucky Roberts, uh, Donald Lambert, these are some of the early pioneers that each had their own unique style, um, but the umbrella over that would have been called Harlem Stride. Mm. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Tracy Hyder Suffern and Ryan Maloney of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem. We'll be back in a minute. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your conscious consultant. And on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. TalkingAlternative.com 
we're back, and you're back to Rediscovering New York in our special episode honoring Black History Month. Um, my guests in this segment are Tracy Heidert Suffern, the director of the, the executive director of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, and the museum's director of education, Ryan Maloney. Uh, Tracy, when did the museum start? The answer to I just answered this question earlier today, and and what I say is the answer to the question depends on how you count, right? So, <laughs> um, we've been around for about twenty five or twenty six years, depending on how you count. Um, late nineties, and mm -hmm. we have had a couple of different incarnations since then. Our most recent is our move from East Harlem to Central Harlem, where we are now. Right around the corner from where I live. Right around the corner in the, heart of, in the heart of Harlem, just off Lenox Avenue. And you have a wonderful like artifact instrument right in the lobby when you walk in. That's uh, the Duke's piano, which uh, is something yeah. to behold. Yeah. Um, what are some of the, the programs you have going on now that, sure. that people can find out about? We are uh, right at the beginning of our winter, or actually what we call our spring pro programming, I guess. And we've got some really interesting things coming up. Um, one of the things that's coming up is uh, we had a, we're doing a tribute to Larry Willis, who uh, passed away just recently, a pianist, um, who passed away in September, I think it was. Um, we've got that coming up in, uh, at the end of February. We're doing a wonderful collaboration with a uh, uh, for-profit business, Article 22. Um, it's called Artists and Activists, where we are highlighting artists who also are doing things to change the world through social activism through, and their artistry. Which is an important part of your background. That's in, right. In professional That's history. Right. And we've got uh, some other really good yeah, stuff. Yeah, every out. month we have yeah. jam oh, sessions, several, yeah. several weekend afternoons. We have a yoga class that we do once yeah. a month. That's a big hit. Um, yeah. We have a, there's a renewed focus on... Um, on self-care and and especially in the music industry um dealing with issues around mental health and addiction mm -hmm. and so we're we have an ongoing series um kind of helping to bring musicians towards uh resources that will help them um do that uh and then let me think. We do a jazz and social justice series throughout right. the year. We do a Desert Island Disc series. So James Carter and, and Sheila Jordan will be here this spring. So, you know, at least one program a week, oftentimes two or three. And yeah. on our website, jazzmuseuminharlem.org, you can find a calendar and subscribe to our email newsletter. We send you out Some once of a the, week. Uh, uh, two, actually, of the in more interesting things that are coming up down the road a piece um, in August, we celebrate the uh, Latin roots of jazz, and that's turned to become a really big and fun thing that we do, and we're going to initiate some programming around the African roots of jazz, which is what Ryan was talking about a little mm -hmm. bit earlier. So we've got some real interesting stuff coming up. And the National Jazz Museum of Harlem is located on West 129th Street, uh, just east of right. 6th Avenue. Just uh, east of Lenox Avenue. Lenox, I'm Between sorry. Lenox Pardon. and Fifth. I live there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm old time New Yorker. Sixth, seventh, you know, eighth. It's all, you know, it's all the same. It's all the same to me. Although not, although not correct. Mm. Um, getting back to to the history of jazz in New York and Harlem, um, how did the Harlem Renaissance contribute to the um, the development of the genre? Yeah. So um, there, there's there's many levels to the Harlem Renaissance. There's the, the literature and the political thinking and community organizing level, which 
um, was driving a lot of of the kind of the 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 movement. And then there was also this musical development that was taking place. There was a very commercial endeavor. There was bands being formed to play at the nightclubs and theaters um, and speakeasies. And this was all happening during Prohibition. So the mob sets up shop uh, in Harlem. There's all these different levels of of how music uh, is um, is emerging but this new black music being created by young black geniuses were was was the desirable music for young people at that time so they wanted to go out and listen to the music and dance to it and so in some ways jazz becomes the soundtrack um to the new negro movement and and then eventually this umbrella term of harlem renaissance kind of encompasses all of that Mm. But maybe in not such a great side of the times, weren't there a number of clubs that were uh, jazz places, but that were originally patronized by white people where African Americans were not allowed in as patrons, even though they could work there and play there? Sure, and probably the most famous of them all is the Cotton Club, right? And the misunderstanding Mm -hmm. that it was a a black club when blacks worked there, but they couldn't patronize the club. Sure, and it was certainly, you know, it was very much a segregated society Mm -hmm. at the time, but you know the cotton club certainly being the one that that we often um as often celebrated in a way without a full understanding mm-hmm. of the complexity of what that meant that mm-hmm. artists like duke ellington uh were playing for white exclusively white audiences and and it was called the cotton club i mean it was designed to look like a southern cotton plantation he was asked to play jungle music and so like all these levels uh, uh you know um that he was kind of dealing with on a societal level but still able to make music that would get people up and dancing regardless of what they thought of him as an individual. Hmm. When did jazz clubs in New York begin to become more integrated? Well, we see we see integration happening, you know, for some of the first times in New York City, we see it around music and it 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 predates um even the jazz age because we start to see even at Carnegie Hall, we start to see, you know, African-American musicians and presenters. Booker T. Washington is there, and a number of pre-jazz artists are presenting there to mixed audiences. But what happens in Harlem is a really unique and special thing because we start to see socially young people. It's often the young people, isn't it, in these movements? But you start to see young people being more open to the idea of having integrated audiences. So... Um, places like the Savoy Ballroom when it opens or Small's Paradise uh, end up being places where both black and white people can gather publicly, um, which is is pretty unique in that period. Mm. How did jazz develop in New York after the Second World War? So everything is changing after the Second World War. Um, Musical tastes are starting to change. We start to see uh, jazz music... um, one branch of the jazz tree starts to venture towards rhythm and blues, which would become rock and roll. Um, and then we see the impacts of the war, um, the big band idea starting to recess a little bit, um, partially because of economics, but also tastes were changing. So the idea of having a 15-piece band that was traveling the country, you know, playing one-nighters, that really wasn't what was in demand as much. Uh, after the war. So that's where some of the small group ensembles start to emerge. People like Charlie Parker and, and um, you know, Miles Davis moves here to, to, to track down Charlie Parker. We see Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk, those individuals. Again, this is a lot of this is happening in Harlem, places like Minton's Playhouse and Monroe's Uptown House. 
these young musicians, again, looking to innovate, looking to put their own stamp on things, um, just like Duke Ellington had done uh, in the 20s as we emerge out of World War II. These young musicians are looking to put their own stamp on things. What about today? How is jazz still part of the scene, and where can people go and hear really great jazz? I missed the Lennox Lounge, by the way, terribly when it closed, I think, five, yeah. six, seven years ago. That was a great place to hear music. Mittens is still there. Mittens yeah. is still there on, uh, I think it's 117th in St. Nick's. That's I right. I think I'm close yeah, on that 117th, one. Yeah, 117th, yeah. It's a little bit scattered. You yeah. know, Showman's is a great club on 125th Street that's still there. There's a place called Ginny's, which is downstairs of uh, Red, Red Rooster, Rooster. Um, yeah. which is kind of, you know, features jazz fairly frequently. The American Legion, believe it or not. Uh, has incredible jam sessions and yeah. um, every so once in a while uh, Gin Fizz which Gin is on Lenox yeah. Avenue yeah. Uh, and 125th Street right yeah. outside of the subway you yeah. c- it's oh, right. two it's feet from the subway yeah. it's above the former Lucy yeah, yeah that's yeah. right you know that's one right. of my favorites is I, I discovered this place it's called room 623 it's on West 119th Street it's down in the basement and I, wa- I was born in 1960 but I swear being down there at night <laughs> It feels like the 60s. It feels, sure. it sounds, you know, the, the music that's played, it feels like John Coltrane yeah. and uh, mm-hmm. Charlie Parker are just sort of coming out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. There's um, a place called Bill's Place also that's run by saxophone player Bill Saxton who, 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 who runs it out of his uh, kind of a brownstone and it's got that same kind of mm-hmm. vibe. And there's another salon, the salon that, that's still going. Um, Marjorie Elliott? Yeah, that's her. On that's Sunday her. afternoons, that's her. That's her. Yeah. That's her. yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. We've mm-hmm. been speaking about jazz in New York and the history of jazz with Tracy Heider Suffern. She's the executive director of the National Jazz Museum in Harlem and the museum's director of education, Ryan Maloney. Thank you for being on Rediscovering New York. Thank, thank you, you so much for thank having you for us. Thank you for having us. Well, we've just finished this week's journey into the history of African Americans and their communities in New York, as well as the Jazz Age, uh, our show in honor of Black History Month. If you have comments or questions about the show, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. Those handles are jeffgoodmannyc, although on Facebook it is Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Tom Siaka, specializing in wills, estate planning, probate, and inheritance litigation. One more thing before we sign off, I am Jeff Goodman, a real estate agent at Halstead in New York, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. To help you with your real estate needs, you can reach us at 646-306-4761. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is the affable Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin of Landmark Branding, who will also be on the show next week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
Do you run or are ready to open your own business? Hi, I'm Jeremiah Fox. I've been operating and opening small business for the last 25 years, and I'm the host of the new show, The Entrepreneurial Web. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern time for insights and stories on the nuances of running small business right here on Fridays at noon, talkradio.nyc. I'm the aptly named host of Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio, big nonprofit ideas for the other 95%. Fundraising, board relations, social media, my guests and I cover everything that small and mid-sized shops struggle with. If you have big dreams and a small budget, you have a home at Tony Martinetti Nonprofit Radio. Fridays, 1 to 2 Eastern at TalkingAlternative.com. Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York, a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network 